Today, the impact of coronavirus on the food chain. Millions of people in Zimbabwe are short of food and clean water. Fishery stores are working to uh, juggle unprecedented demand. The case food system has come under greater pressure than at any time in living memory. Food prices have trebled since the virus was found in Sudan. No Coronavirus has become a hunger crisis. Welcome to Frontline Food. In the first episode, we explored our food landscape and how the intricacies of colonialism, free trade and corporate and government control have led to a dominant industrialised food system that is centred around profit. The practices adopted by this system have led us to multiple crises in community well-being, planetary resources, animal welfare, climate change and human health. We are now standing in the midst of one of the biggest health pandemics of our time. But how is our adopted industrial food system relevant to the coronavirus, a seemingly unrelated health pandemic? We need to start looking at food as it should be, as health. Food is health. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. It is time to stop dividing agriculture and food and health. Because they're all one. The way we do agriculture is the way we produce health. And food has to be brought back to health. Both the health of the planet and health of people. So if our food is the basis of our health, what does this mean in an industrial system that focuses solely on profit? In the last episode, Bandana Shiva outlined how giant corporations such as Bayer and Monsanto and multi-billionaires such as Bill Gates had their hand in the industry of disease because disease means money. In terms of disease, I call the corona epidemic, like all the new infectious diseases, 300 new ones that have got, been created in the 25 years of globalization, they're diseases of globalization. They're diseases of agribusiness. We are talking of the toxic industry creating diseases, and that same toxic industry as Big Pharma, because Bayer as Monsanto, sells the toxics, but Bayer is also a big farmer. And they have a perpetually growing market in disease for big farmers. So they want sick people. They want more pandemics. They want bigger markets for drugs and vaccines. The most important thing to recognise here is the level of control these corporate giants have and their reliance on our food system to make and keep people sick as they continue to pour billions into this system with this knowledge. To help us better understand what this actually means and looks like in the practices of our food system, I spoke to Lim Lee Ching from the Third World Network, an international policy research and advocacy NGO based in Malaysia. Ching is a member of IPES Food, the international panel of experts on sustainable food systems, who recently released a report entitled COVID-19 and the crisis in food systems. Firstly, I was just wondering if you could outline um, for us sort of how food and agriculture are relevant to a, a global health pandemic. Yeah, I think we, we can really see COVID-19 uh, as a wake-up call for food systems uh, because as governments uh, and people have responded to the pandemic uh, with lockdowns and uh, disruptions, obviously in movement, etc., 
what has happened is this has really exposed the fragility and vulnerabilities uh, and inequities in our food systems. We've seen various issues arise um, where poorer communities uh, in different countries around the world have been unable to access food. Uh, farmers and fishers in, in other countries have been unable to go to their farms or to see. This has happened in my own country, Malaysia. Uh, I know this has been the case in Ecuador, for example, where fishers have not been able to, artisanal fishers have not been able uh, to go fishing. Uh, at the same time, you know, in many countries, supermarket shelves have emptied. Um, we've seen bottlenecks in the food supply chain. Um, and, you know, in, in an ironic way, uh, food has had to be dumped. Uh, because it's unable to find markets uh, at the same time when people can't access food. So, so these are really um, chronic issues that have been exposed by the pandemic. I think importantly as well, we've seen that workers and migrant workers, uh, we've read about cases, uh, for example, in the meatpacking industry, uh, where they've been exposed to the virus, um, which reveal um, how their rights have been affected uh, and the cramped and unsanitary conditions that they have to live uh, and work in. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good sort of outline of how, you know, food is completely inseparable from from a sort of pandemic. Um, I was just wondering specifically in the context of coronavirus, what is it telling us about our food and agricultural systems? I know that you've mentioned sort of people not being able to go fishing because of lockdowns and um, changes in migrant labour. Um, so what, what does that mean in terms of our food and agricultural systems? Yeah, I think um, one of the first things it shows us is that um, already, you know, hundreds of millions of peoples have been, you know, living ever in very precarious uh, situations. Uh, even before COVID-19, uh, you have 822 million people undernourished, 2 billion people experiencing food insecurity. And of course, as the pandemic has led to an economic crisis and economies have ground to a halt, uh, the impacts actually fall on those who are already facing discrimination or are marginalised. And this includes people of colour, women, migrant workers, indigenous peoples. Uh, we have a situation where, ironically, food system workers are among the lowest paid and facing food insecurity and low wages. So they are vulnerable to the economic disruption. And also farmers are at risk because, particularly in developing countries, it's farmers and rural uh, people who make up a large number of the poor. So at the same time, when they can't, um, you know, when there's market volatility or, you know, different demands and changes in demands, it can actually bankrupt them and, 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 and prevent them from making any more invest investment in farming. And then that leads to a vicious cycle uh, affecting food supplies. So I think, you know, the human cost uh, of this, I think, uh, is, is, is quite uh, important to recognise. Um, and then, of course, then we see that, you know, from the pandemic itself, um, which there are links with industrial agriculture, because we know industrial agriculture uh, is responsible for a great amount of habitat and biodiversity loss and actually creates the conditions for viruses to emerge and spread because we see if there's more habitat destruction, destruction uh, greater human-wildlife interaction. Uh, this has in the past uh, led to uh, pandemics uh, including HIV, AIDS, Ebola, West Nile virus, SARS and Lyme disease. So all this originate 
uh, from animals. And when zoonotic spillover occurs, as uh, is probably likely the case in this pandemic, uh, then you know these are the conditions that will allow more diseases uh, uh, to arise. And we need to be uh, aware of this and to see how uh, industrial systems, industrial food systems, including intensive livestock production, uh, can actually amplify the risks of diseases emerging and spreading. Um, I think uh, the other issue that has been brought to light by the COVID pandemic is that, as I said um, earlier, is that really our food supply chains are vulnerable. Um, whether it's long food supply chains, which of course depend on complex flows of people, trade, uh, inputs, uh, these are vulnerable, of course, to things like export restrictions. Uh, we've had some countries uh, saying that they will restrict exports. Uh, this has happened, for example, uh, Vietnam uh, in terms of its rice exports, um, which affects countries um, in Southeast Asia and, and countries like Malaysia, where I come from, um, where we import a lot of our rice. So many countries are now kind of looking and rethinking um, this. But even short supply chains have been affected because a lot of local markets have become inaccessible and local markets are where pe the majority of people in the developing uh, world get their food. Um, and of course, then farmers are also affected because they can't sell their produce and then consumers can't access food. Um, so I think, you know, really the COVID crisis has exposed uh, all these uh, vulnerabilities in, in our food system. Mm. So it, it sounds as though this is kind of more of a systems-based issue rather than the coronavirus itself. And I, and I know that earlier you've mentioned sort of a few other um, diseases and pandemics that have um, affected our food system before. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering if this isn't the first time that um, pandemics have affected our food system, how is the coronavirus different to, to those scenarios? Well, yeah, I think, you know, food systems have, uh, you know, over the, the years, we've seen um, repeated destabilization by different kinds of shocks, uh, whether it's the 1970s oil crisis, we had the food um, price crisis of 2007-2008, for example, which greatly disrupted supply chains and caused uh, spikes and hikes in uh, food prices. We've had uh, other pandemics like SARS and Ebola. Um, so I think, you know, it's not unusual in that sense, although I guess this in this current circumstance, it's quite exceptional because it's it's really a huge pandemic that has affected, uh, you know, the whole global population. Uh, and and what it's done is just basically shown us that our current food systems are not up to the mark. They are, you know, unable uh, to provide uh, equitably uh, for everyone. Uh, they're vulnerable to to supply chain shocks. They're vulnerable to all these different shocks, whether it's economic shocks, health shocks. Uh, and we know, uh, of course, that, you know, there are intersections with biodiversity loss and climate change, uh, which which are, are now clear and present and, and looming. So what we really need to do is to address this from a systemic level uh, because uh, we can't tweak around the edges and try to, you know, um, tweak our current food systems, but we really need a radical change. And um, and so what do you think sort of amongst all of this, what, what do you think are the biggest issues and challenges that we're now facing? Well, I think... Um, for me, for me, in my in my opinion, I think uh, at, while 
we, as I said, we've seen these systemic shocks to the system, right? But at the same time, the crisis has actually shown us what new and more resilient food systems could look like. And I, I can, you know, give some examples uh, later on where communities themselves have come together to plug the gaps and where governments have actually stepped in uh, to ensure the production and provisioning of food. So I think this really is, in a sense, a window, right? For us to say that we need to transform our food systems, we need to move, uh, have a paradigm shift towards a resilient food system um, and address the root causes in an integrated way. Now, of course, this is not easy um, because it is a, a challenge that uh, many people have been grappling with uh, for, for a long time. But I think the, the pandemic uh, makes it a lot more urgent. Um, and by this, I mean, we need firstly to move out of the conditions that lock in industrial agriculture. We know that the current paths are unsustainable. They contribute to climate change and biodiversity loss, and neither have they fed uh, people uh, in a healthy way. Uh, we've seen how industrial agriculture drives habitat loss and actually creates the conditions uh, for viruses to emerge and spread. And we've seen how corporate concentration in the supply chain uh, can lead to bottlenecks and problems. Um, so we need to undertake structural reform, and I think this is the biggest challenge. And to make this paradigm shift from industrial food systems to what um, we at IPES Food have called um, diversified agroecological systems. You know, one thing that stands out uh, for me uh, uh, is really how communities themselves, farmers' organisations, civil society have really stepped up to plug the gaps. Um, you know, I've read um, news articles and news reports about small-scale farmers and community gardeners in Zimbabwe, for example, uh, which have basically uh, filled in, you know, because of the problems with access uh, to to let to to the commercial farms and you know commercial farms not being nimble enough to adapt. Uh, it's really the small-scale farmers that have stepped in in Zimbabwe to plug the food supply gaps and provide um, food and vegetable. Uh, we've seen how um, things. Like community-supported agriculture schemes in China and other countries have expanded, and this allows people to support uh, local farmers by entering into direct producer uh, and consumer marketing schemes. And of course, you know, in many ways, and not just in the food sector, but we've seen how important it is that the role of the state, if it chooses to act, um, and it has to in these circumstances, uh, can really step in and find the resources, uh, you know, find the, the resources and, and the policies uh, to be able to step in, whether in the health um, sector or in the food sector. And uh, there are examples around the world, uh, good examples, for example, in Kerala, in India, uh, the, the state government uh, has been widely praised for its um, um, response to coronavirus. And one of the things they did was they have ensured food distribution uh, via free community kitchens, which are run by women's networks. Uh, the Ministry of Agriculture in Jamaica uh, has launched a program to move food, fruits and vegetables originally uh, destined for the you know, hotel sector and the tourism market uh, and, and, and to encourage local people to consume this health, healthy food and to say that, look, we need to uh, invest more in our small farmers. We need to support uh, these um, um, you know, 
these producers. Uh, Thailand has taken uh, action to bolster domestic uh, food production, including seed distribution, strengthening online and home deliveries. We've seen that in my country, Malaysia, as well. Um, so I think you know governments, uh, you know, have stepped stepped up, and and we've seen how with the pandemic that if there is the political will, they can move the resources uh, to much more, um, you know, uh, appropriate uh, uh, local action that actually um, is able to provision food for people. You paint a, a really sort of positive and empowering picture of all of the the grassroots kind of community responses that are happening. Um, and it's amazing to hear such a, a sort of global scope of, of all of the um, responses. I'm just going to step in here, because while our governments in the state have stepped up in some cases to provide the immediate resources to feed people, heavily relying on the small-scale farmers and community action networks that are not usually deemed worthy enough to feed us, this does not mean that this is a sudden shift towards these more resilient types of farming, nor that corporate control has simply vanished. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Back to the interview. Um, one of the things that, that really sort of struck me when reading the, um, the IPES food statement and also through being aware of um, a bit of a movement that seems to be going on really towards uh, sort of food, not farms, and, you know, looking at um, the digitization and the automation of our food systems and um, really sort of pushing the industrial agricultural model as a, as a solution to a lot of the problems that we've faced, um, which, you know, as you've explained, are actually in fact a, um, a sort of symptom of our industrial systems, but, you know, kind of rebranding the industrial um, practices as a solution to lack in um, migrant labour and, and these types of things. And uh, I guess one of my fears is that these narratives of kind of big business and agri-tech companies are so strong and they have um, held over our food systems for such a long time. I'm wondering, um, you know, whether you think that there is a huge opportunity for these businesses um, to kind of bring these developments in in a stronger way or whether you actually think the, the more local and community um, sort of food responses have, have a chance against this. Well, you know, of course it's true that there have, uh, you know, that there have been moves to really basically reinvent the industrial food system as the solution. Uh, and despite us knowing that, you know, these are actually some of the root causes, right, in terms of uh, the problems that we have uh, in the food systems at the moment uh, and the vulnerability uh, to shocks, not just uh, health pandemics, but climate change or biodiversity loss, for example. And this is really uh, business as usual, uh, you know, disguise, right? Uh, but I think, um, and, and, and yeah, of course, uh, as you say, uh, there, there are steps that have been taken undercover in a sense uh, of, of just redo, doing the same thing. I mean, we've seen this in just with, uh, for example, in the US um, with the, the issues with um, uh, the meatpacking industry, for example, um, where, you know, they've been deemed uh, essential and you have to stay open and without addressing the systemic root causes of why there have been outbreaks uh, and workers falling sick in those kind of situations, right? Uh, so this is a lot about business as usual and continuing uh, the same, same all. So we really have to have this uh, concerted effort uh, to, to use this window to call for a different kind of um, food system. And, and I think, you know, for example, just here in the UK where, you know, surveys have shown that people want different 
indicators of well-being now. You know, I think part of the reflection of the pandemic is that we realize what's important to us, what's in, um, what we should count as important, and this also should relate to the food system because we don't want to count uh, and measure our food systems only by things like yield, uh, which are one-dimensional, but we need to show you know, to count all the other things that matter in terms of sustainability, in terms of fair wages for workers, for farm workers, in terms of being just and equitable. And I think that's important. And it's really uh, about citizens building from the bottom up, uh, you know, uh, working with uh, uh, progressive governments or progressive policies, chaining those policies and, and, and reimagining a new sort of future uh, in our food systems. Because if we don't take this moment uh, to reflect and step back and to think about what systemic changes are needed in our food systems. Unfortunately, uh, this won't be the first and last time, right, that we find these problems and this crisis in the food system because we will have to keep doing it again and again. And I think, um, you know, people uh, are starting to, as I said, that COVID-19 has become a wake-up call in many ways, um, you know, for many, many different sectors, but particularly for the food system to say that we've got to change things. Uh, and really take this seriously. And fortunately, there are examples around the world. Fortunately, there are examples in terms of agroecology, uh, building resilient food systems that we can look at and say, like, look, we can build back not just better, but build back differently and build back in a transformative uh, manner. Mm, and I mean, you, you kind of mentioned this as being a wake-up call and, and I, you know, I stand with you on that. I really hope that, that it is. And I, I'm just wondering, with your kind of knowledge and expertise of the way things are set up at the moment, do you think that this is enough of a wake-up call? Do you think that the shift that we're experiencing now is kind of substantial enough to, to create the lasting change? Or, or do you think that, you know, we, we will succumb to the kind of business as usual and back to normal um, kind of narratives coming from the more sort of industrialised sector. Just so you know, Ching's washing machine came on during the interview, so sorry for the background noise. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's it's hard to, you know, I hope, of course, that we will uh, take the action. Uh, and I know that uh, many uh, civil society organisations, many communities, farmers' organisations are uh, doing this already and calling for, for a change. I mean, you know, this... This, this call for a paradigm shift in agricultural and food systems have, you know, have increased since 2009 uh, with the uh, UN-sponsored um, report, the International Assessment on Agricultural Knowledge, Science and Technology for Development. And since then, there have been numerous, uh, uh, you know, international meetings, discussions, reports, all pointing to the need to change uh, the way we produce and consume our food. Um, and I think we have seen an increasing political uh, attention on agroecology, for example, uh, which has, you know, uh, you know uh, shown itself to be resilient and I think this is where we would like to go um, and um, IPES Food uh, has pointed this out in its report in terms of shifting to a resilient agroecological food system uh, yeah so I think we need to in a way scale up that means putting in place the institutions and the um, 
policies, the law, the legal uh, framework uh, in order to support this. We need to scale out in terms of replicating the good examples, replicating the numbers of farmers, for example, that are producing agroecologically, uh, replicating the good examples of um, governments where they have stepped in, for example, to procure food from small farmers, and also to scale deep, which means that we have to change uh, values and mindsets uh, we have to deepen these kinds of processes and dialogues and to increase participation of citizens uh, in food policy um, development. Just, uh, just off the back of that, as, as consumers and as citizens of, of our food systems, what, what do you suggest that we can do to kind of get involved to help uh, sort of strengthen that shift to more resilient food systems? We all play a part uh, because we're we're eaters, uh, so we can join in with the call for the shift to agroecological resilient um, food systems by supporting uh, farmers who produce in such ways, uh, and you know leading that kind of consumer demand for it working in partnership with um, farmers because there are many schemes now, especially with the pandemic we've seen uh, where the territorial markets, farmers markets uh, have you know, given alternative means of purchasing food. Uh, there are schemes that uh, work in solidarity with farmers, uh, community supported agriculture, for example, which is not just about purchasing the food, but uh, supporting the farmers uh, who are trying to grow uh, the food in a, in a sustainable way without chemicals and in an agroecological manner. Um, then, of course, you know, there are, um, in some countries, there have been examples, whether at local level or municipal or even national level. So, for example, in Brazil, in Canada, where there have been established food policy councils, uh, where citizens really uh, take a much more active role in shaping uh, the food policies for their regions. So I think, you know, it, it involves action, it involves uh, getting um, getting involved and getting involved in, in, in the discussions locally uh, to say what, to kind of reimagine what kind of agriculture we want for the future. Um, of course, um, governments also need to take steps, right? We, we, they need to take action to protect vulnerable people. That's obviously a key priority at this time uh, to be able to maintain food access and food security in the midst of this public health crisis. And we've seen examples where governments have stepped in to provide cash transfer or emergency food assistance, uh, provide social protection, for example. And I think at the centre of all this, we need to ensure that people's rights are protected um, and that... Uh, you know that that they continue to be able to work in healthy conditions it's definitely necessary for us to get more involved with our food system and as ching said there's a lot of opportunity perhaps the most we've seen since we first adopted an industrial system to get involved and participate in a more localized healthy just and sustainable food system for all but while there is hope around a more resilient system and ching was certainly optimistic about the realization of our broken system and a want for change there is also a huge threat that this want for change will be co-opted by the powerful players that already have the greatest level of control. The breakdown of our systems during COVID has certainly made way for reinvention, but this space is already being used by governments and giant multinational agribusinesses to halt steps towards these healthy, local and sustainable food systems and push for more industrialised practices such as the automation and digitalisation I mentioned earlier. They are being touted as a solution to the disruptions caused by the labour shortages and restrictions in mobility brought on by the pandemic. 
these corporate giants, are reinventing the industrial food system as the way forward and to safeguard us against this happening again, despite it being the main cause. I really don't want to overlook this point. So let's go back to what I mentioned earlier about food without farmers and lab-grown food, something that is becoming more and more popular. Here's Vandana Shiva. So the same system, the same buyers in Monsanto, the same Bill Gates, are prepared for farming without farmers, where they're already making plans for digital agriculture, precision farming, selling big data as a commodity to farmers. You know, there's an ad in Indian paper where a farmer sitting with his soil in one hand and his phone in the other, as if a farmer cannot know his soil or cannot go to a public land to find out the soil food web. So they're totally dumbing down farmers' knowledge. And at this time, they're also talking about food without farms. So, you know, the entire Impossible Burger, also with 14 patents, again with investments of Bill Gates. They want real food to end. They want farmers to get out of the way because for them it's all. If the chemical industry and the poison cartel saw agriculture as a market for chemicals, the digital giants are seeing agriculture as a market for digital. And they're seeing the destruction of real food as a market for fake food. That's why they're rushing so hard at dismantling the food safety standards, pushing chlorinated chicken, pushing GMO imports, because they kept saying well, our small farms must go and big industrial farms must come. For 30 years, I've been trying to tell, governments have come and governments have gone, but they keep saying we have too many farmers but it must reduce the farmer. And now they want to reduce the farmer to zero. They're really treating the farmer as a disposable cog in a machine that can be thrown away. How is this justified? By a very false category of productivity. Any productive means output per unit input. They define farmers as the only input, not the energy, not the fossil fuels, not the toxic chemicals, not the capital, not the energy, not the water, not the land. If productivity had to be measured for soya bean, it's such an inefficient system. Look at the amount of acreage it has to occupy. But by putting only labor as an input, they make reduction of people and farmers look productive. And this creates the illusion we are getting more food. And I realized this when I was doing this report way back 20 years ago, that the graph that is grown is the bubbles keep growing and people think we have more food. No, all it means is the acreage per farmer has become larger. But in nutrition terms, the food output has gone less. The smaller the farm, the more food we have, the more output we have. FAO data across every country, every region says, the smaller the farm, the more we produce. Why? Because food and agriculture are living processes. Living processes need care, not more toxics, not more violence, not more greed, and not, not more extraction. Care can only be exercised at a small scale. It, it's an imperative of scale. And 80% of the food of the world comes from small farmers. Only 20% comes from the industrial system. But we are living through a period, like I said, 300,000 are going to die of hunger. And we do have an entire group in power that doesn't care if people die, doesn't care if farmers die, doesn't care if people die of hunger or disease. Reclaiming our right to food, real food, our right to health by eating real food, 
our right to food democracy and food sovereignty, which can only be exercised by making a shift from the extractive colonizing system governed by corporations to local systems that give back to society, give back to the earth, and create community. Food is community. We have to rebuild our communities. And once we rebuild our communities, no power can stop us. Of course, along the way, they'll pass laws. It's illegal to do this. Grandmothers can't bake cakes for hospitals. It's dangerous for your health. But you can have a McDonald's hamburger. They will criminalize our freedoms, criminalize our right to safety, criminalize our right to grow our food, to make us dependent on GMOs, gene-edited GMOs, chlorinated chicken, fake food, impossible burger. This is the time we have to realize that ultimately, creating community, communities of solidarity, and saying we will not accept your distorted laws that are laws of ecocide and genocide. We will defend the right to live, the right to eat, the right to be healthy. We can produce enough good food for all. So it seems we have two options. Either we build back by allowing these agribusiness giants to deepen their control and expand their profit margins by using the same techniques that got us here in the first place. Or we take this opportunity that has been opened up by COVID to put the power back in our own and our farmers' hands, to build truly resilient and just farming systems that will help put an end to these many crises. Stay tuned for the next episode of Frontline Food as we head to Kenya to learn how indigenous wisdom and tradition in our food systems are imperative in recovery and resilience. Thank you for listening to Frontline Food. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on Spotify or iTunes, follow Frontline Foodcast on Instagram and Facebook, or head to the website to find out more. Frontline Food is written and produced by me, Georgie Styles. Music contributions by Ollie Barton Wood, Shadow Flute and Owen Shires, and logo designed by Holly Champion. A huge thanks to the Land Workers Alliance, Bandana Shiva and Lim Lee Ching, as well as iPest Food for your contributions towards this episode.